<laughs> okay, welcome everybody. Um, I'm Esra Özürek, the um, Chair for Contemporary Turkish Studies at the European Institute. And welcome to this event organized by the European Institute and the uh, um, Contemporary Turkish Studies. It is part of Perspectives on Europe series. It's an inaugural lecture. Um, professor Çağlar Keydar is the centennial professor at uh, LSE. Um, and um, so I, I'll introduce Çağlar Keydar. Probably many of you already know him. Um, he is an economist by training. He got his PhD in economics from UC Berkeley, but then um, since then he has been teaching sociology um, at Boğaziçi University and also at SUNY Binghamton. And he really transformed and shaped our understanding of state, class, underdevelopment, developmentalism, and more recently about cities and urban transformation in Turkey. Um, so today he will be talking about the limits of transformation from above, Turkey since 1914. He will be um, talking about maybe 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll have a question and answer period. We, we are recording the talk, so hopefully there will be a podcast about it, but I'm told sometimes there are technical issues, but we are hoping that this will definitely be the case. So thank you for um, being here, and thank you, Chala. Thank you very much, Ezra. I'll go there. Um... I'm very pleased and honored to be here, um, and thank you for the introduction. Um, the state tradition in Turkey is often invoked to explain the continuing weight of the political authority in attempting to direct social transformations. What state tradition implies is the belief that major processes of social change derive from state projects. There are good arguments for this position in a general sense. Society-driven social change theories derive their data mostly from Britain and then the United States. While even in the European continental examples, it is difficult to dismiss the important input of the state in initiating social and economic change. The continental tradition has, of course, recognized this difference, and the sociological analysis of latecomer societies has generally followed a Weberian approach in according the state and almost autonomous status. In the case of the third world, it's even more difficult to ignore the state uh, because the state has acted as an independent initiator of large-scale transformations. Hence, the attempt to bring the state back in now seems to be the principal approach in the literature on the historical sociology of non-Western societies. What we, term, what we uh, mean by the state tradition in the case of Turkey has evolved independently of modern social science literature. It derives from an analysis of the dissimilarity between European feudalism and Ottoman institutions. Ottoman polity was characterized by European political literature as despotic, where only the sultan was free and the entire population were slaves. 
The Sultan, as a patrimonial ruler, governed through his servants, who were granted revenues as payments, often in land. The palace bureaucrats, or provincial administrators, had no right to their positions. They could be replaced at will, because unlike feudal lords, they had no independent status. Their status was only given to them by the Sultan. Hence, there were no lasting property claims which could be converted to political power. In fact, private property remained a dubious category because on paper, all property belonged to the Sultan and any possession right could be revoked. There was no accountability or recourse to independent courts either. No judge would rule against the wishes of the state. The conclusion to be drawn from this model is that no group in the society would have the standing to initiate any social project, and there could be no institutionalized civil society in a position to defend itself against the state or resist its projects. The Tanzimat reforms of the 19th century throughout the century were considered to be validation of this model, where the state was seen to unilaterally proclaim a huge transformation in the social order revamping economic, legal, religious, and political balances. The 19th century Ottoman experience was regarded as a model for state-led transformations from above, everywhere. The reception of these reforms at the level of the society was not questioned, because the state tradition model also implies that there's a political culture that accepts the commanding role of the state that there's a deep belief in the society that the edicts of the state must be accepted because the state cannot and must not be opposed. Of course, it has always been known that this is in fact the state's ideology. In the real world, any analysis of state projects is bound to discover that such projects may meet with social resistance. Secondly, social transformation projects may fail because the instruments in the hands of the state are inadequate for the task. In this lecture, I will look at three such statist projects in Turkey over the last hundred years, with the most ambitious claim to be, to, to, to be able to transform the society. There are several, of course, state projects, but these are the ones that I find to be the most ambitious in terms of complete transformation of the society. What must rank highest and boldest in the list of such state-centric projects is the attempt that comes at the beginning of the period that of molding a nation-state out of the remnants of empire. It may be argued that this was a mission thrust upon the Turkish state elite since the end of World War I was witness to the conception of dozens of nation-states. As empires disintegrated, the only alternative political form seemed to be the one that celebrated the congruity of territory and nation. The World War and the subsequent local clashes determined the territorial boundaries of these states, boundaries which have remained unchanged since, since then in most cases. The task that was left to the founders of the states was the choice over the definition of the nation. Turkish nationalism was not very developed before the war. In fact, up until a few years before 1914, the dominant current of state-building ideology was Ottomanism the attempt to transform the empire into a modern state while binding its population around the idea of an Ottoman nation. But Ottomanism did not prove to be a popular notion except among the elite. Instead, as transformation and familiarity with Europe progressed, nationalist movements emerged within the millets, 
aggravating the resentment felt by the Muslim population who were left behind in the economic prosperity and modernization enjoyed by urbanizing Greeks and Armenians. By 1914, after a series of wars, the ruling group of young Turks had abandoned any attempt to recapture an Ottomanist spirit, and they had come to the conclusion that they had to base their state project on the Muslim and Turkish element. When the nation-state came into being, its ideology was yet to be formulated. There was no ready sentiment which could be refashioned into a serviceable nationalism. The war, although instrumental in awakening a national sentiment, had been fought in the name of the Sultan and the Empire, not the Turkish nation. For the vast majority of the participants, the World War, the Armenian massacres, and the subsequent war with the Greek army were conflicts fought against Christians and foreigners. National liberation was a later gloss on the events. In the formulation of Kemalism, however, Islam was taken out of the equation and replaced with Turkish ethnicity as the banner. The project Atatürk and the Republicans articulated was meant to transform a largely illiterate and conservative population whose cultural vocabulary derived from folk Islam along a path of secular modernization. There was, however, a ready constituency for this project, even if their numbers were small. These were the more westernized groups in Istanbul and a few other cities, plus the population that had been displaced from their homes in Russia, the Balkans, and Greece, and who had come to what was now Turkey. These groups were forced to settle in the remaining Ottoman territory during the last half, half century of the empire's existence, basically starting with the war in 1878 with Russia. They were more urban, more educated, less conservative, and much more secular than Anatolian peasants. They became the natural audience for the Turkish nationalist, Turkish nationalist teaching that attempted to leave Islam outside of the equation. Since the Kemalist elite saw Turkey as having participated in European history and civilization, there was scant room for civilizational resentment or cultural contestation. The Republicans left that option to the Islamic movement. Even during Tanzimat, political Islam had been very clear in its critique of westernizing reform. They had reaffirmed civilizational difference by arguing for the Islamic character of the empire. Mustafa Kemal and the bureaucratic elite, however, abolished the caliphate a year after the declaration of the republic, much to the disappointment of those who hoped to forge an Islamic front in a worldwide struggle against colonialism, especially, of course, Muslims in India. When Ankara embarked on the secularizing reforms of the early republic, all references to the Islamic ingredient of the liberation struggle were erased from official history. Against this background, the Republicans' choice to reject an essentialist culturalism, necessarily imbued with religious reference, was determined as much by their opposition to Islamists as their aspirations for the Western ideal. A cultural opposition to the West would lead to an acceptance of an authenticity constructed as primordial, and Islam was the only candidate. While Islamists decried the decadence of the West, 
Kemalism embraced all those symbols of Western civilization that Islam is found morally reprehensible. The problem was that even within the secular spectrum, the choice of the particular foundational myth rendered Turkish nationalism exceptionally arid. According to the story, the nation was ethnically defined, tracing its lineage to Central Asian, tri- to, to Central Asian tribes who had conquered Anatolia and founded the Ottoman Empire. In their attempt to distance themselves from the Islamic tradition, the Kemalists were cornered into referring national heritage to an obviously invented history, thus opting for a much less resonant version of the national myth. As secularism became the republican ideology during Ataturk's time, religion became the defining banner of those who were resisting westernization and clinging to the old culture. While official ideology was one of modernization, the material structures of everyday life were hardly touched by the state. There was almost no urbanization during the first two decades of the republic, and the economy barely managed to stage a recovery after the devastation of the wars from 1911 to 1923. Besides, with the massacres and deportations of Greeks and Armenians, many of the commercial and credit networks in Anatolia had been dis- had been disrupted. Economic stagnation during the Depression and then mobilization during the war confined modernization mostly to appearances. The rhetoric glorified the state and was intolerant toward dissent, especially of the kind that attempted to oppose the state's strict regulation of religion. Statism had been a common feature of interwar years globally. But in Turkey, the single-party regime came to be identified with strict authoritarianism and the rule of the gendarmerie. Anthropologists writing on Anatolian villages in the late 40s and early 50s talk about closed communities with few links to the outside world. Transportation was always a problem. All season roads were rare, and most production was for subsistence. While the state succeeded in propagating a secular nationalism to some of the urban youth, literacy remained very low in the countryside. Most of the population was effectively out of reach. Lacking such infrastructural infrastructural means, state capacity to implement its project remained limited. Even without the formidable resistance of Islam, state's project would have been very difficult to achieve. The end of World War II brought with it American funds, as everywhere in Europe, idealization of the market, and a strong motivation for dismantling the authoritarian apparatus of the founding party. Freedom meant elections. Accordingly, a multi-party regime was instituted, and the opposition parties could easily mobilize the peasantry, which constituted 75% of the population. And of course, the main platform was religious freedoms. The elections in 1950 proved that the Kemalist project had failed in its main ambition, and that leaving out Islam from the definition of the nation had brought defeat. From here on, the secular religious divide became a lasting feature of the Turkish political spectrum. The ruling ideology of right-wing parties was always a mixture of Islam and Turkish nationalism, although this nationalism did not favor the ethnic emphasis of Kemalism, while the Kemalists and others on the left remained staunch defenders of the secularist worldview. 
The second episode I will discuss follows upon the decade of the 1950s. The Democrat Party of Prime Minister Menderes had responded successfully to the aspirations of the masses, both by allowing Islamic practices to come to the surface and by giving free rein to the market zeal of the peasantry. But in the process of curbing authoritarianism, it also alienated the state elite, the intelligentsia, and especially the military, which had remained as a bastion of Kemalism. Following the euphoria of the first part of the decade, the decade of the 50s, Prime Minister and party leader Menderes grew less tolerant of criticism. Under populist policies, the economy entered a crisis. International goodwill turned sour, demanding a more rational mode of governance. When Menderes would not act to appease the opposition, nor take any action to reform economic policy, the military staged a coup. The economic transformation of the 1950s had been deep and entrenched. Roads had been built, villages had opened up, and commercial agriculture was thriving. A private sector in services and light manufactures had developed. Turkey had become a showcase for the triumph of modernization. After the election campaign of 1950 and the proliferation of political parties, peasants and small-town inhabitants felt that they had started to participate in a national conversation. A true national, national integration was occurring. The constituency that formed around the anti-status discourse and local-level economic transformation was too strong to allow a different kind of statism to be revived. Perhaps the most important development of the period was urbanization, which nearly doubled the urban population. The new population of rural migrants, especially in Istanbul, but in other cities as well, proved to be crucial in politics. They evolved into a constituency which was reliably suspicious of status policies and very much against the secularist elite. Their growing population inhabited an informal urban space and lived in mostly self-built shacks. The salient feature of their social and economic existence was that they were potential owners of houses built mostly on public land. Kemal Karpat, who conducted an extensive ethnography of a Gejekondu neighborhood in the 1960s, came to this conclusion. Quote, if the shantytown dwellers eventually become the owners of the shack houses, they turn into champions of private property, free enterprise, and democratic politics. Unquote. They in fact did turn into determined defenders of the market and of electoral politics, but overwhelmingly on the side of religiously inclined politics. The project that the generals, those who uh, staged the coup in 1960, and the secular intelligentsia had in mind in 1960, was to stage a period of restoration where political and economic populism would be replaced by responsible politics and planned development. The immediate result of the coup was a new constitution in 1961 which introduced limits on parliamentary supremacy by instituting a higher chamber, a senate, and various checks by superior courts. At the same time, a state planning office was established to plan and govern the economy. This was supposed to be a powerful agency in charge of sectorial planning, especially in allocating scarce foreign exchange to investors. According to plan, Turkey was to evolve in the direction of a state-directed economy. 
electoral democracy would be prevented from populist excess, and national development was to acquire technocratic oversight. In fact, the project was challenged as soon as the military withdrew from the scene. The planning office was rendered impotent, and the Senate lost its power. After a period of participation in coalition governments, a new party uh, of Suleiman Demirel, the Justice Party won the elections in 1965 and continued with the popular policies of Menderes. The debates concerning the strategy of developmentalism continued through the decade of the 60s. The Constitution had permitted the founding of a socialist party, which surprisingly received 3% of the votes in 1965 and came to be represented in the parliament. There also developed a vibrant publishing environment, which quickly became a platform for the now left-leaning statist intelligentsia. The popular weekly journal, Yuan, meaning direction, advocated a non-capitalist path relying on the national bourgeoisie. For this to be achieved, they wanted the progressive military to step in and get rid of the center-right politicians who were considered to be partners of American imperialism. University students who were rapidly becoming politically engaged were attracted to this platform. Inspired by the global youth, inspired by the global youth movement, they went on the streets, but unlike the students in Europe, their main concern was very much within the state tradition. They saw themselves as the potential state elite and wanted to embark on a more directed developmentalist road. The end of the decade also witnessed the birth of the Kurdish movement, I'm referring here to the famous Eastern meetings, as well as workers' militancy. In the face of all this radical upheaval, the military once again stepped in to establish law and order. Their argument was that the Constitution of 1961 had been too liberal. They brutally repressed the left, the workers and the Kurds, and tentatively revived the project of status development, somewhat similar to bureaucratic authoritarianism in Latin America around the same time. Once again, this technocratic initiative was short-lived, however. As soon as political competition was permitted, the political parties that were successor to the Mendes ethos emerged again on top. Supported by the bourgeoisie, the commercializing peasantry, and the growing population of shanty dwellers, they vetoed the statist option. They were happy to live with authoritarianism, but they did not want it to be bureaucratic. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, Islamic parties were successful in increasing their share of the vote. The Welfare Party um, became the largest party in 1996, and its leader, uh, Nejmettin Erbakan, became prime minister, leading the coalition government. The military, however, stepped in again, forced the ousting of Erbakan, and the party was closed by court decision in 1998. Political instability followed, coalition parties were discredited, and the economic situation steadily worsened, culminating in a deep crisis in 2001. Finally, Erdogan's AKP, Justice and Development Party, handily won the elections in November 2002. Erdogan had been elected mayor in Istanbul in 1994 as candidate of the Welfare Party, but along with a number of dissidents, had formed AKP in 2001 as a moderate Islamic Democratic Party, 
with the aim of capturing the secular center-right vote. All other parties had been discredited or proven incompetent, and Erdogan's promise of finally broadening democracy and civil rights was the most attractive platform. Adding the support of business circles and liberals to an already broad base of Gecekond dwellers, AKP won the elections in 2002 and increased its vote steadily thereafter. The period since then has been one of exceptional political stability. This stability yielded important results. There were reforms regarding civil liberties permitting the progress of negotiations with the EU. There were advances in social policy, especially through a health care reform. There was a concerted effort to improve the country's infrastructure, in particular the road and transportation network. Less visible, but more important, was the streamlining of the state administration. Until AKP's coming to power, the bureaucracy had remained a battlefield in the struggle between center-right-dominated governments and the more statist civil servants. Functionaries often behaved as if their mission was to block any transfer of power to politically appointed superiors. They fought against any attempts to reduce the prerogatives of the state. AKP was successful in changing this, often by establishing parallel streams and marginalizing those who did not cooperate. In the end, the state became much more effective in the sense of the bureaucracy in the sense of the bureaucracy serving as a proficient instrument in the hands of the political power. From the point of view of carrying through the projects, its, its projects, AKP's biggest asset was the party's success in embedding itself in the society. Starting with campaigns in local elections at the grassroots level and the running of municipalities, the party organizers were practiced in working at the neighborhood level. AKP's extensions were also present in civil society associations, NGOs, unions. The effectiveness of their reach became most apparent as they were able to nurture a new caste of businessmen, especially in provincial cities. These newcomers to bourgeois ranks received government contracts, formed their own networks under the auspices of the governing party, and became passionate supporters of Erdogan. Sometimes they are known as the Anatolian bourgeoisie. AKP's penetration into the fabric of the society translated to the party's ever more impressive electoral wins. Neoliberal policies were balanced by increases in social expenditures and a strong economic performance that brought with it employment. There was, however, growing disgruntlement by those who were left out because they were known to be secularists or Alevis. Especially in small towns, opportunities were closed to prof professionals, and businessmen who were not part of the devout networks were left out. After 2010, there were more worrying signs that AKP's hegemonic control over the state might slide into, into an illiberal regime where all power would be concentrated in its leader. Efficiency in administration came to resemble rule by a small group at the top of the party. Local administrations lost their authority. Regulatory agencies and review boards were rendered impotent. Legislation was being changed continuously in order to reward the faithful. 
with elections being regarded as the only relevant test of legitimacy, majoritarian rule in the parliament was being established. It became a situation of rule by law rather than rule of law. The transformation project that all these developments foreshadowed seemed to require a change in the political regime from a parliamentary system to a presidential one. Erdogan wanted increased powers for the presidency, but was unable to garner the required numbers for constitutional change. In August of this year, however, he was elected president, and he is now expected to rule as if he had obtained the mandate for the presidential system. The new project, and this is the third project I'm discussing, of AKP is aptly titled New Turkey, a label that is reminiscent of interwar formulas such as Stado Novo or Ordinere, Ordine Nuovo. It is primarily directed at the party's conservative constituency. It seems to rest on two propositions. First, a change in the perception of Turkey's place in the world. The argument is that the nation-state was too narrow a container for the heirs of a glorious empire, and that Turkey's identity should be redefined as neo-Ottoman, as the sponsor of Sunnis in the Middle East. This grand project matured during the Arab Spring with the expectation that Muslim Brotherhood-type parties would emerge victorious out of the democratization process. But it was shattered in the disappointment with Syria and with the coup in Egypt. The most recent developments in the Middle East would seem to have rendered this particular venture illusional. Secondly, growing authoritarianism and centralization of rule in the hands of the party is presented in a positive light by arguing that any opposition is tantamount to an illegitimate attempt to overthrow the elected government. Any questioning of motive or allegation of corruption must derive from conspiracy against the true representatives of the people. The traditions that are deemed to be authentic are increasingly interpreted as against secular institutions. This is most visible in education, where religious instruction has been making inroads. Along with the difficulty that critics of the regime confront in recourse to courts and the increasing tendency toward outlawing protest, this project seems to promise further polarization between those who cling to a secular life and the conservatives. The limits of this project are to be found not in the inadequate capacities of the state, as in the first one, or in the possible discontent of the bourgeoisie, as in the second one, but in the level of social development in the country that has produced a sizable middle class that values civil rights and democratic participation. Gezi protests in the spring of 2013 were an indication that there's a potential for anti-authoritarian mobilization in larger urban areas. There are too many social groups who have a stake in participating in global networks, and there's a sizable modern sector in the economy that needs them. Of course, it is difficult to speculate whether the government might become more conciliatory or whether the more liberal elements in the party might attempt a center-right defection. But the project, as it has unfolded in the last few years, does carry the risk of implosion of the regime. The three projects I have discussed relate to three levels of societal development. First, there's an attempt to define the nation, its global orientation and destiny. 
But this was a nation in imagination only. Most of the population at the time lived in isolated villages, and the rulers did not particularly want social or geographical mobility. When the conditions brought about mobility and social integration through economic development after World War II, the stakes, the stakes became real. A complex society was forming. Was it going to be left to its own devices, or would the state be able to direct it? The state tradition suggested that there should be a role for the state elite to play, but the opposition to the statist ventures of 1960 and 1971 prevailed. We may argue that the intervening period between the 1980 coup and the 2000s is one that witnessed growing complexity in the society. Classes became more differentiated, new identities were discovered, diverse lifestyles emerged. But the political forms that could potentially contain the tensions and bargains that this, and tensions and, 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 and proceed with bargains that this, complexity, that this complexity gave rise to had never been constructed. The state tradition in the form of successive military coups had frustrated most efforts in that direction. It had regarded any initiative from the society with suspicion. The present-day project of New Turkey is a reaction by today's ruling party to the manifold demands of an increasingly multifaceted society. It is built on the premise that the state tradition still retains purchase, that there is unthinking adherence by the society to the belief that the state's reason must not be questioned or challenged. But this is manifestly false. In an environment where there is, a demand, where there is demand for greater democracy, ethnic autonomy, minority rights, civil liberties, social movements ranging from gay rights to claims for the rights to, city, rights to the city, it is a project that offers a simplistic blueprint. The resistance promises to be formidable. Thank you. We saw that some things are new, but some things are not changing. Um, so now the floor is open for questions. I'll take um, groups of three questions, and Chalar will answer them, and I'll take another group of three. Um, when you ask your questions, please wait for the microphone, because the event is recorded. Um, that's how we'll do it. And also, if you can just say your name and um, your affiliation. Um, is this working? Mm -hmm. yeah. University of Graz. Um, thank you very much for that um, enlightening and uh, all-encompassing lecture, uh, Professor Kedar. It's very nice to see you here at the LSE. Um, I'm reminded of one of... Um, um, Cengiz Akhtar's um, uh, columns uh, last February in Taraf newspaper. He being, of course, for the last decade, one of the proponents of a state reform to, in line with European Union standards um, and uh, believing that the AKP would be mobilizing the necessary forces to bring about that uh, state reform. I'm talking about the reform of the bureaucracy to open up and give way for the elected officials to actually be the masters of um, their own fate. Um, had written in, one, in this piece in, in Taraf that 
actually what had come about was not really state transformation or bureaucratic transformation, but a complete debureaucratization of the state. That the state tradition that has its roots back in perhaps Tanzimat or even earlier and despite its illiberal and authoritarian characteristics, had nonetheless had a memory which the Turkish um, society and state could count on in the toughest times had disappeared. And he had finished the article by saying that I could not imagine that um, I would be writing an, a column in praise of the state, but here I am. Um, would you share the same sentiments, or what would you like to comment on that? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, this gentleman here, please. Uh, Ali Nihat, no affiliation. Um, again, I'd like to echo thank you for the talk. It was most informative. Um, I'd like to address as a layman what I see as what I suspect is the elephant in the room. I appreciate that you've done, you've um, covered Grand Greek's uh, sweep of history over 100 years, but um, everyone here will no doubt be aware that there is, uh, has been a power struggle between um, the AKP and Jemaat. Uh, um, I wanted to know whether, um, uh, how that fits into your narrative of um, uh, the relationship between the state and the people, the grassroots support, and how things might be changing or going back uh, to the worst. And whether what's at stake right now is simply power, or are there separate models um, that map onto your narrative uh, that are at stake right now in, in the fight for what might be the soul of Turkey? Thank you. We can take um, this gentleman. My name is Tufan Kaya from LSE. Uh, I want to ask, uh, how would you define the current political uh, system in Turkey? Uh, if you have an imaginary scale from 0 to 10, and if 10 represents the full democracy and 0 the dictator, dictatorial regime, how would you define what, would you, what was your note? Okay. Thank you. So. Um, I'll take the questions in the order they were asked. Um, in terms of state reform, I think uh, perhaps a better way of putting it would be um, how autonomous uh, do you want the bureaucracy to be uh, as a check against uh, political wishes? Um, the I mean, if, if you know, in the in the sort of old uh, Weberian idea of uh, bureaucracy as basically an instrument, uh, which is uh, technologically superior to any other way of administering things, um, I think AKP has done extremely well uh, because, uh, as I mentioned, they have in fact um, uh, constituted, uh, instituted some uh, sort of uh, alternative streams of of, of command. And um, instead of going through the bureaucracy, if, that, if there was an opposition there, they um, were able to do things much more efficiently that way. So I wouldn't say that they have destroyed the state. Uh, I think what is going on probably is uh, an, an efficient bureaucratic mechanism, except that what has happened is that the, the party, or at least uh, uh, the ruling clique of the party, have taken full command of this bureaucracy. 
So, um, I mean, it, it depends on how you define uh, the, the state administration. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you would like that to sort of uh, to, to, to represent a certain continuity in, in, a, in, a, in a state tradition, a certain, you know, something cannot be done, but some things are okay type uh, approach, um, then perhaps, yes, it is being destroyed. But if you think of it as simply an, uh, an instrument in the hands of the politicians, uh, which can be wielded in any particular way that they desire, then there is a, a, a definite increase in efficiency, a definite increase in proficiency. And that comes mostly from what I call being embeddedness, uh, what I call embeddedness, uh, in, in the sense that uh, there is much more uh, link with the at local level um, there is much more command over, for instance, municipal um, municipal uh, um, uh, contracts uh, that are uh, tendered. Um, there is uh, therefore a way of uh, commanding at the very uh, sort of cellular level uh, of uh, what goes on in the society. So, from one perspective, that means that the state is much more capable, has much more capacity. But from another perspective, it means that it doesn't have the balancing uh, role that uh, bureaucracies sometimes enjoy. So it uh, sort of uh, depends, as I said. Um, now, in terms of the uh, relationship with AKP and Jamaat, I, I, I deliberately did not uh, make that distinction because obviously Jamaat was part of AKP for a very long time. and. Uh, and um, as, as you probably know, there are all kinds of interpretations saying that some of what is going on now, uh, or some, some, some of the uh, uh, excesses of uh, AKP's uh, attitude in, in generally in politics, and for instance in terming everything that is uh, an opposition uh, as conspiracy or, or, or being very uh, intolerant of uh, opposition uh, is because of their um, fear of uh, sort of the Jamaat coming back or whatever. So in that sense, um, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to say that Jamaat has a diff different uh, sort of path that they would like to follow because we don't really know. I mean, they are a secretive organization and they certainly never had the chance to, um, to, to, to implement any of their uh, strategies, uh, any of their projects. Um, so um, it's, 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 a difficult, uh, it's a difficult thing to say whether, in fact, uh, there is a real difference uh, that would make any difference in terms of, um, in terms of um, the political attitude of the party or in a, in, a, in a more macro sense in terms of whether the uh, sort of the state is becoming fully uh, congruous with the party or not. Uh, so um, now in terms of uh, ranking AKP's uh, democracy from 1 to 10, um, it's, uh, that's, uh, I mean, reducing things to a single scale is always uh, uh, difficult, of course. Um, uh, in terms of the um, in terms of the rhetoric, uh, I would say that democracy is uh, uh, has really been sort of um, pushed down to, to to a very low level. Uh, but maybe that's not important. Uh, what I think is of most concern is what is going on with the judiciary and with uh, sort of the autonomy of the uh, court system, of the of the of the legal system. Um, there, uh, 
um, uh, there are signs uh, that there are still uh, uh, there are still uh, possibilities of um, sort of autonomous. Uh, Judiciary at the very top level, at the level of the constitutional court, for instance, and at the level of the um, at, of the Danushtai, um, the uh, the state uh, court of appeals, the uh, those have not yet been sort of fully uh, brought under um, the party's rule. But in most everything else, uh, it's very difficult to, to talk about the all the um, dimensions of democracy, except for the um, election uh, results. I mean, as you know, Erdogan constantly talks about numbers. Uh, he talks about uh, the votes he gets and the, the numbers of um, the numbers of uh, uh, people uh, he has in the parliament and uh, numbers in general are sort of his his, his main uh, support for all his arguments. But of course, democracy is supposed to be something much more, uh, uh, much more, uh, 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 sort of dependent on uh, a certain sort of premise on which the numbers uh, are uh, to play, and the premise has to do with the constitution, of course, but it has to do also with uh, a legal culture. It has to do with. Uh, um, aspects of uh, uh, legal uh, um, reasoning, legal neutrality, um, legal uh, impartiality, etc. Um, those kinds of things uh, are very problematic. But on the other hand, um, is it ever the case in Turkey that uh, we had uh, a, a sort of a, a good uh, autonomy of the uh, of the legal? Uh, 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 legal estate uh, was it ever the case that uh, judges really were uh, impartial and autonomous? Was it ever the case that um, they were not uh, reluctant to do something uh, against uh, the uh, state or the state's wishes? So, relative to, to, to Turkey's history, perhaps uh, this isn't too unusual, uh, but Certainly, the demands now and the expectations are uh, at a much higher level than they used to be. So, uh, I mean, people are more uh, informed about what goes on in other places. Uh, they have the EU and the EU's uh, uh, principles and uh, EU's uh, requirements in mind. Uh, so perhaps the judgment is a bit too harsh, but uh, relative to Turkish history, maybe it's not too far from the par. Okay, the floor is again open for questions. Um, uh, Basilis? Sorry, Kevin? Kevin Featherstone from the European Institute. Thank you for the lecture. I much uh, appreciated that. I wonder about your conception of the autonomy of these states. If we think about the state tradition in different European countries, we think about a continuity in the French state tradition, an embeddedness of different state traditions, Germany and elsewhere. But your portrayal, unless I've misunderstood something um, deeply, uh, suggests the capture, seizure, manipulation of a state tradition. What then is the autonomy of the state tradition in that context uh, if it can be so, uh, so manipulated? Um, here? 
Uh, good evening, uh, uh, Professor Kaida. Uh, thank you for the for the lecture. And your name, please, first. Uh, I would like to you to explain why has uh, Turkey decided to facilitate the no flying zone over Iraq in nineties, followed by the uh, sustained sanctions against of my family and the rest of the Iraqi nation. In November 1913, uh, sorry, 2013, Turkey imposed sanctions on Syria, yet facilitated the armed insurrection uh, operated freely in Syria, in uh, Turkey, I beg your pardon. Mm -hmm. uh, how long does uh, how long does uh, how long does Turkey intend to continue the occupation of Cyprus, Northern Cyprus? Mm -hmm. Now that the USA has contrived to uh, to get the uh, matter of the Navi Marmar to be uh, swept aside. Uh, in the same way as the uh, liberty ship was set aside and to please the Israeli lobby in the, in the Senate. Uh, can you please explain enough. why is Turkey very uh, quiet on that matter? Would you explain why uh, uh, the, the uh, recently uh, been uh, a gentleman, uh, Halil Savad, have been uh, indicted, and it's been on uh, for 30 years, been followed up for uh, ostensibly to, uh, on, on the pretext that he's evading uh, national service. Okay, sir, I'll Thank stop you. you here because, okay, great. Um, I was looking to see if women want to, someone from, but okay, maybe in the next round. Uh, my name is Dimitar Bechev, and I'm at the European Institute of Visiting Fellow here. Um, Professor Keda, thanks a lot for your wide-ranging talk. Um, as a sociologist, you're bound to look at structures, processes, institutions, but I'm tempted to ask a question about the individual personality, and we know the name of the individual, Tay um, Perdoan. Um, in other words, how important is is he in the whole scheme of things? Um, and in what ways is he important, his views, preferences? Can we assume him away and, and then get similar outcomes? And how do you see agency in, in, in the whole story? Uh, um, thanks. Um, okay. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Kevin... I am very much uh, worried about the concept of autonomy. Um, and I fully agree with you that uh, we can talk about state tradition in a very many different contexts. Um, and certainly in the case of France, um, there seems to be a continuity, uh, uh, which um, during the period um, that sort of uh, parallels uh, the 60s, for instance, the French state looked to be uh, uh, much more capable of uh, planning and of, in fact, uh, um, 
determining what the private sector was doing, uh, all, not only because of his planning, but also because uh, it was uh, the owner of the commanding heights of the economy. Um, now, capture, of course, is, uh, is, 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 is something that uh, talks about, <clears throat> that, that refers to um, the private sector actually, or private uh, entrepreneurs or private uh, interests being able to um, penetrate into the boards or into the uh, decision-making um, uh, structures. Um, that's really not what is happening in the case of Turkey, however. Uh, what is happening is, is interesting because, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the party's main links with the bourgeoisie is through the Anatolian bourgeoisie. Um, and the reason for that is because um, Erdogan feels himself to be um, trying to um, uh, nourish uh, a different uh, structure in Turkey that is alternative to the existing secularist westernizing structure. So the Istanbul bourgeoisie is seen to be um, basically enemies, and um, they... Uh, they are part of the uh, pro-European, uh, pro-Western, uh, secularist uh, camp, and um, in general, uh, Istanbul is always seen uh, sort of as uh, suspicious by uh, statists. It has always been the case in Turkey. So uh, we're, we're talking about uh, not capture, but rather um, the ability of the state, or the, in this case the party state, to develop its own constituency through nurturing of alternative structures. Um, and, 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 and these, uh, these sort of new this new constituency, the Anatolian bourgeoisie, uh, as I said, are, are quite avid in terms of their support of the, of the party. Uh, um, there's one, uh, one sort of uh, possibility of conflict that I can imagine, which is that the, the, the um, owners of these factories and uh, businesses in places like Konya and Kayseri are in fact becoming much more sophisticated and are uh, expanding their operations globally, etc., and, and that will require them to be asking for perhaps more predictable, more uh, rational uh, sort of state structures, rather than going on with uh, a much more of a command mechanism and much more of a mechanism that relies on uh, patronage and relies on, um, let's say, arbitrary decision making by the uh, by the politicians. So that, that might, in fact, lead to um, uh, a rift between um, the, uh, the, the party state and uh, the uh, bourgeoisie. But in any case, I think, you know, if we're talking about um, um, the state uh, tradition, the state tradition is obviously still there, and, uh, and it's not a question of capture. Uh, on the contrary, it's a question of the state actually uh, creating its own society. Um, I think that is perhaps the difference between uh, cases like France and, uh, and, and Turkey. 
Um, the, the gentleman's uh, question uh, regarding foreign policy of Turkey, well, foreign policy is a mystery to, to me. Uh, uh, obviously, Turkey has always been uh, very much in the American uh, camp, uh, necessarily so. It's a frontline state. Uh, it's been since the Cold War, I mean, together with the Cold War, it has always been uh, sort of uh, supported. Uh, it has received American aid. It has. Uh, it is a part of NATO. So all the, all kinds of things that it has done uh, throughout that period uh, can be seen as being uh, sort of partners with uh, America within American hegemony, squarely within American hegemony. Uh, so Iraq sanctions are part of that. However, um, I think more recently, uh, together with uh, this. Uh, project that I mentioned uh, of Erdogan's of uh, sort of recreating uh, some kind of a new Ottoman uh, space uh, for Turkey, uh, things uh, began to diverge a bit from American, uh, American politics. And in the case of Syria, that is for sure the case, uh, because uh, Erdogan's um, expectation, uh, as many people have said, was that uh, out of the Arab Spring there would be um, elections and sort of what he thinks of as democracy in the Arab states uh, and uh, also in Syria. So he thought that the Syrian opposition would uh, win quickly. And then uh, when uh, that did not happen, uh, he became uh, quite frustrated and uh, decided uh, that uh, Turkey would um, um, wield sort of a, 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 a war against, or a, not a war necessarily, but, but a campaign against uh, Assad uh, without necessarily having to listen to the American uh, policymakers. So um, that was the uh, main reason for the divergence of uh, policy between the United States and, and, and Turkey uh, in terms of Syria. And now, of course, it has come to a head in the sense that uh, the Americans seem to be much more willing to uh, talk to Assad and because of what is going on in the region uh, with ISIS and whatnot. And uh, Erdogan seems to be more and more frustrated because his uh, policies with regards to, uh, to, to regime change in Syria uh, seem to have totally failed. On um, Cyprus, I'm totally ignorant. <laughs> Um, now, in terms of Erdogan's uh, sort of personality uh, having an impact on all of this, I fully agree. I think I think his personality is is not key certainly, but 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 very important. As you know, his background is uh, um, a neighborhood in Istanbul. Um, he was born in uh, Kasımpasha, which is uh, sort of a, an urban but uh, poor neighborhood, not a not a Gezekondu neighborhood at all. Um, it, its inhabitants are known as tough and sort of lumpen and uh, and, uh, uh, and and real urbanites. Uh, and uh, he has the swagger and he has the background of being a, a relatively successful football player coming from Kasim Pasha, and um, he has um, therefore. Um, I mean, I don't want to sort of do any analysis uh, of uh, his childhood or anything, but but he has also, uh, uh, I think, uh, a much more uh, resentful attitude toward the uh, bourgeoisie in Istanbul, sort of the elites of Istanbul. Uh, 
And um, that uh, is probably one element uh, that should be considered. But the other element uh, has to do, I think, with uh, his uh, suspicion of uh, expertise. Um, he's obviously uh, extremely intelligent, a uh, very quick learner, but at the same time is quite reluctant to leave much space to experts. Um, so these are all elements that sort of feed into his attitude. Uh, and uh, more recently, I think his attitude has become um, sort of less predictable and, uh, and, 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 and more vindictive in a sense. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, from what I read in the newspapers, uh, I gather that in this latest uh, situation with uh, this uh, $600 million palace that he built for himself, there's quite a bit of embarrassment within the party. Uh, but um, he nonetheless has carried it through and uh, is defiant about it. So, yes, there's a lot about personality that's involved. Okay, one last round. Um, this uh, lady. It's Jesse Harrington, and I wanted to ask how much did the strategic interests of other countries and prerequisites of the Cold War affected the transformation of Turkey since 1940? Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm Bartu, and I'm an international political economy student at LSE. My question will be about the role of Turkish civil society and maybe institutions in counterbalancing an almost non-elastic electorate. Uh, I made a couple of deductions from your speech as well. So I would assume that uh, there's this state secularist modernist group of people who also owns the state apartments for some time and a rural conservative class. And there's a continuous tension between these two. And uh, the state secularist modernist group seems to lack the instrument to counterbalance the rural area or the conservative group of the people in 2000s or after the 2000s. And since this group of people are also, they seem to lack the quantity to win in the political elections, do you believe that there's a uh, dominance of this conservative group of people who don't seem to be very elastic and whether the Turkish civil society can counterbalance them? Thank you. One last question. Yeah, Thank you. Um, my name is Ali Guven from Birkbeck down the street. Uh, just, uh, uh, I, I think that um, your speech was very interesting to uh, to to analyze the the internal dynamics of the situation in Turkey. But I was wondering where the story would fit in the uh, world historical time. Uh, you talked about three episodes of top-down state transformation. Uh, but uh, the, the, these episodes, uh, when you juxtapose them against world trends at the time, did they put Turkey ahead of times or, or behind the times? Uh, whether they reflected dynamics 
uh, that were uh, prevalent at the time around the world, or uh, mm -hmm. that is my, my question. Okay, um, I'll take the first and the third questions together because uh, they both relate to um, what was going on in the world at the same time uh, as these projects were unfolding. Um, it's certainly true, and this is something that I actually thought of mentioning uh, in the lecture, um, that these projects uh, seem to coincide with similar um, projects that are going on in, in, in other similar countries uh, around the same time. I mean, certainly the um, foundation of the nation after the First World War, as I did mention, um, there were dozens of uh, countries that, are, uh, that had just been formed uh, out of the dismantling of empires, and um, all these countries uh, had to grapple with the same question. Now we have this territory, uh, how do we fill it? Uh, how do we define uh, the population? What kind of, um, sort of unifying, uh, uh, unifying story do we tell the population so that they feel like they are a nation? So in all these cases, I, I think it's quite obvious that the states were trying to establish the nations. Uh, they were trying to create the nations. And it was a choice. Um, um, sometimes they were successful, sometimes they were not. Uh, in, the, in the Turkish case in particular, I think the historical, uh, the historical heritage of the founders of the state uh, was quite decisive in, in their uh, thinking that this was a nation that really uh, deserved a place in Western civilization. And this is why they did not have the kind of, uh, the kind of alternative uh, civilizational uh, imaginary that we see, for instance, in India. Um, what they instead said, uh, the founders, were that, uh, well, we are just you know, backward rather than being totally different. So, which meant that they could, in fact, uh, make the leap and become part of uh, the Western civilization. And I think that was quite, uh, quite uh, important in their deciding that uh, Islam had to be left out. In the second case, of course, we're talking about uh, an age of developmentalism everywhere in the world. Um, American hegemony, of course, is uh, there, and Cold War comes into the picture here. Uh, and one of the aspects of Cold War, which uh, people don't talk about too much, is that American agencies were extremely influential and instrumental in forcing the countries that they felt to be uh, sort of showcases against communism. Um, toward development. I mean, there are all the uh, you know, AIDs and uh, IFCs, and uh, the, uh, the, the World Bank, of course, was part of this. Um, they, they, they felt that it was quite important to um, sort of, uh, launch these countries uh, on the development, developmental path. But the question always was, uh, well, what kind of development? Um, in many countries, like Egypt and India, uh, are good examples. For instance, uh, there was sort of a, a non-capitalist path type uh, search for a path for a, for a, for, an, for an alternative uh, strategy. Um, uh, planning in Turkey, as I said, was uh, very much uh, something that. Uh, 
uh, was uh, imposed uh, on uh, first Menderes and then later uh, on, on the uh, military regime by OECD and by the Americans. So uh, it, it was part of the sort of the world time, if you wish. Uh, so, I mean, world history cannot be sort of uh, seen as uh, entirely outside of this. Now, in, in, the, la in the very last episode, um, um, there is a lot of talk about uh, sort of illiberal democracies, and there's a lot of talk about um, how the West is no longer a model. Um, and this, the, in, in, in terms of political arrangements, that is. Um, so I think these these are serious uh, sort of uh, uh, serious uh, diagnoses, and uh, and and Turkey is perhaps part of that wave as well, and, and maybe it should be considered within that rubric of um, sort of um, seeking uh, a way of uh, uh, conducting uh, political and economic uh, matters in, in a new way rather than simply copying and imitating the old parliamentary regime, uh, etc. Um, but of course, uh, there are um, different kinds of uh, uh, resistances and different kinds of contexts within which these have to be uh, implemented. And this brings me to the second question about uh, what uh, the civil society is doing and whether or not uh, secularists uh, can ever imagine uh, 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 an election victory. Well, yes, uh, well, one has to be optimistic. <laughs> Um, but um, uh, but uh, I mean, what, what is interesting to me is that um, throughout the uh, in, in the period after the 1980 coup, um, the, the the kind of uh, uh, struggle that was going on in the in the civil society shifted very much from uh, being state directed to much more uh, directed towards a maturing of the civil society itself. Um, this was enormously aided by the European Union, especially in the 90s. In the 90s, the European Union was very present in Turkey. Um, they were um, acting almost as if they were a civil society association, um, not only through funds, but also through actual um, directing of uh, certain um, uh, platforms and uh, being part of uh, certain um, demands from the state, etc. And uh, since, uh, since the year 2000, uh, we see more and more uh, of a differentiation in these civil society demands, not only now for democracy and for um, civil rights, as it was the case in the 90s, for instance, under the EU auspices, but also for um, identity and for um, all kinds of uh, rights uh, that were not, uh, such as gay rights, for instance, uh, environmental rights, which were uh, not part of the uh, repertoire in the earlier decades. I mean, you know about uh, the Gezi protests uh, last year in, in spring. Um, um, there, everything came together. 
uh, it was really uh, quite an eye-opener, I think, for um, Turkish uh, for students of Turkey, uh, because uh, all these different kinds of groups that uh, some people didn't even know of their existence were acting together, and uh, it, it looked like there was a platform on which they could, in fact, meet and uh, and, and and come up with uh, come up with. Uh, uh, demands um, uh, that were shared. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of, sort of the civil society component. There's also um, a component of um, sort of a, a more old social movements uh, perspective. Um, these are new social movements, but the old social movements, we can talk about, of course, the Kurdish movement. And we can talk about the Alevi movement, um, which are also uh, oppositional and which are also uh, demanding new kinds of rights. Now, if the Kurdish movement and the Alevi movement, plus what goes on in the civil society, ever find a meeting ground, I think that would be quite a serious uh, contender. And uh, perhaps the... Um, the match should not be seen as one between secularists and conservatives, but one between uh, the kind of uh, utilization of the state for a particular purpose versus uh, building of structures that will allow expression for all these movements together. Okay, so our, um, we can actually take one or two questions if there are final burning questions. Please. Hello, um, Adam Love. Thank you for the lecture. Um, I just wanted to ask if you could expand on um, this, the role of the state and whether you saw that as uh, separate to the political tradition that it was captured by. Uh, and build on the gentleman to my, my left's question about whether it was a right to see in your last example uh, the state and the AKP as, as one entity or whether those were should be considered as separate entities when you're considering transformation from above. Okay. And at the very back, there was a question. No longer? Yeah, please. Uh, my name is Tjebo uh, Um You just briefly discussed um, Tayyip Erdogan's personality, and probably a logical consequence of that is that there are very few dissenting voices within the AKP. Um, one of these dissenting voices used to be Abdullah Gül, who sometimes, occasionally, hesitantly um, criticized Erdogan's uh, authoritarian behavior. But now he seems to have been sidelined. Do you think he will make a political comeback? And how, what does he actually really think about the AKP? And does he have, still have faith in, in his old friend Erdogan? <laughs> OK. And then this um, gentleman in uh, red. Hi there. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Faz Samani, unaffiliated. I, I wanted you to elaborate a little bit more about the uh, Gezi Park protests, and also if you could um, elaborate on um, Erdogan's kind of uh, charisma within the uh, how Erdogan and his party are seen in Turkey and in the world in terms of how they react to um, any opposition, any protest that they see. For example, in the um, disaster, mining disaster, 
which followed the uh, Gezi Park uh, event, there was him slapping and uh, protester, and also him uh, and his, one of his aides kicking and punching a protester. So if you could elaborate on that and how how his party is seen in Turkey and the world, thank you. Um, right. Um, I mean, the, 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 as, uh, I think this came up before when we were discussing about you know, whether the bureaucracy should be considered uh, an instrument or, uh, or, or something that uh, is supposed to be uh, more of a check against uh, the politicians. Um, my inclination now is to think of uh, what is going on as the um, construction of a party state. Um, in other words, the, the party with uh, almost full uh, authority over the state, um, so much so that uh, um, representatives of the party in smaller towns are able to actually uh, tell the uh, governors what to do. Uh, are able to censor them, are able to uh, change their uh, rulings, etc. Um, there are very few uh, sort of uh, state uh, agencies that are still autonomous in that sense. I mean, I don't want to sort of uh, make it seem as if this was uh, sort of the Italian state of the uh, interwar era, but uh, the, it, it seems to me that that's sort of the direction it is evolving into. Um, um, dissenting voices within AKP uh, certainly not good. Uh, uh, I think he's too timid, uh, and he's, as you say, sidelined uh, quite effectively. Um, but uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult to know what is going on. Uh, one hears almost nothing about the inside, uh, the, the the inside of the party. The parliamentary uh, group uh, acts always as a single voice. Uh, there's no dissent at all. Um, if, there's any, if there's any criticism of the, of, the, of the top of the party by the rank and file, uh, we never hear that. Uh, so, uh, but uh, on the other hand, I mean, you know, there are rumors that uh, people are not too happy with uh, all this ostentation and uh, this, this sort of one-man show that is going on. Um, and uh, I have been predicting that the, the sort of the, the faction within AKP that represents the center right, rather than sort of the religious conservatism, etc. Uh, because it used to be, I mean, as, as I mentioned, AKP used to be um, quite uh, important in, 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 in widening the scope of liberties uh, during their uh, first. Uh, First eight years or so, um, and um, there, there there must be a faction like that, and uh, and and you know if there's any dissent, it's going to be expected from that side, rather than from anybody who is visible in the in the actual actual politics or in the parliamentary group. Now, Gezi, of course, is uh, is 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 I think the crucial uh, event of the last few years. Uh, the, um, the the way in which Gezi unfolded was uh, it started with uh, sort of the the educated uh, university students, uh, young um, people who were uh, working mostly for the modern sector. Uh, what one might call sort of the new middle class, the, the educated cadres, the professionals, uh, etc. 
But then, of course, it was um, uh, it was uh, sufficiently large a platform, and and it was sufficiently uh, uh, sort of attractive for many other people to join in. And uh, and in this, uh, when, when when many other people joined in, you had the Alevis, you had uh, sort of the unemployed youth. Uh, it became much more like uh, the, for instance, the Egyptian case. Um, Definitely, definitely, Erdogan's personality had a role in making it so big. Um, because uh, the, the first thing he said was that this was a conspiracy against him and against his party, and uh, and uh, that the people who were actually who were actually demonstrating in, in the maidans uh, were um, were simply sort of paid lackeys of uh, these conspirators. And that uh, brought more people out on the street. Uh, similarly, in the cases that you mentioned, in the mining disaster, um, is, is totally sort of out of tune reaction to what was going on there. Um, made more people uh, angry and more people go uh, on the streets. So yes, I mean there is that factor that um, that perhaps for AKP it would be better not to uh, not to. Uh, make him so visible and so much in the in sort of the front line and uh, sort of keep him in the background. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Charlotte Taylor. Thank you. Um,